Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 84, Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning. Yes, hello, welcome. My name is Lori Krieg and I am the executive director of Hole in My Heart Ministries and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan and I am here with licensed therapist, Argyle fan after Dr. Dan Allender called you out on being an Argyle expert last um, week. How are yeah, you feeling, Matt? Uh, well, I am but a lowly apprentice. <laughs> I just called you a point. fan. <laughs> I I've, I've started you. researching Argyle, like full disclosure here. I've started <laughs> like actually re- doing the research and in, into the Scottish Highlands, you know, influences on the Argyle pattern. And so I'm, I'm, I'm an apprentice, you know, I'm, I'm a white belt. <laughs> White, white argyle belt. pattern <laughs> i don't even know there's no symbolic meaning to the colors but there will be when i'm done with them so for those of you who are completely confused just listen to last week's just yeah. the beginning where dan allender uh humbled matt thoroughly okay but that person who was just talking is the argyle fan and my husband matt matt we are glad you're here yes. and you are still welcome in this space well very very good i'm glad that I'm not kicked out. <laughs> Still wearing my Argyle socks, guys. No worries. All right. <laughs> we also have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Ribbit. Ribbit. I've got a frog in my throat today. <laughs> I don't do. know. So there, I'm He's, a frog. All right. Welcome, frog. <laughs> today, we have the privilege of talking with a pastor who loves and cares for his local church and the church. And he's going to offer us some practical steps in how to walk through 2019 as church leaders and as caring congregants. And his name is Bruce Miller. And for those of you who don't know him, 22 years ago, Bruce led a team of leaders to found Christ Fellowship in McKinney, Texas, where he now serves as the senior pastor. Bruce has also taught systematic theology at Denver Theological Seminary, and he's authored 10 books, which is most recent and the one that we're going to be leaning into and stole the name from for the, the title of this podcast today is called Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning. He's also written Same Sex Wedding, Should I Attend, A Wise Way to Develop Your Own Response and Your Life in Rhythm. And Bruce and his wife Tamara have been married 36 years and have been blessed with five children and six grandchildren. Bruce, welcome. Thanks. Delighted to be here. I'm honored, Lori, that you'd invite me to join this crew. And I feel convicted now. I need to go out and buy an Argyle sweater. But other than that, I, I think I'm okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> then you'll be included or I don't know. We'll hit some of those core needs that we were talking about a little while ago. Now, you are welcome here. Uh, but before we dive into some of those practical pieces uh, of how we can lead the church in this time of sexual questioning, let's get to your questions of the week, you audience. But we are going to start with you, Bruce. Here's the question. What was your first car and what does it tell us about your personality? Well, I'm a little embarrassed. My first car was a red Pinto with a white fabric top. I say that communicates that I'm frugal and my wife says miserly. (laughs) (laughs) Insert wife comment. There you go. (laughs) Well, I mean, whatever. Miserly frugal. Is this a very fine line? Potato, potato. Potato, potato. <laughs> Argyle fan, how about you, bro? All right. Well, in this question, I was really resonating with with Bill from from Facebook. He said he had a 1984 black Trans Am with T tops, and that is important. Yes. Why? Um, I don't know what any of these words mean. T tops. So it's, much better than a Pinto. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's so much better than a Pinto. It's so much better than my first car. And that's why I'm like, this was very close to my like dream car. Nice. Was, was the Trans Am with T tops. Now the dream car would have been a Corvette for me with T tops, but what's T top? T top is where it's like not a convertible, but you've got the panels directly over the, the driver oh. and the, the passenger yeah. that 
you know, so you get the airflow. So oh, yeah, yeah well, the T-tops are highly important. <laughs> um, so thank you, Bill. And very, very good, good car. You should probably still have that, I'm guessing. What was your But anyway, car? my first car was a 1990 Honda Accord sedan that squealed like the Dickens every time I turned it on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a belt loose or something, and I couldn't stop it. And, this was the mm. car that you... Oh, yeah. This is the car that you... That won me, guys. That, yeah. You want to know the way to a woman's heart. This <laughs> was a car with car. a nest in the back full of papers mm. and, you know, fast food wrappers and all those things that were just an immediate come hither <laughs> that, <laughs> to was, you. that was the attraction, guys. It was the car. That was the heart connection. There were probably small woodland animals in the back seat. Might so have been. I'm sure. She's like Snow White. So, She's drawn to the yeah, little creatures did. of the. Yeah. So, what that says about me is that I was a poor college student yeah. and didn't really take care of the back seat of my car. So. Or your clothes, or your apartment. <laughs> whoa, whoa, we were just going car here. <laughs> wow. Ouch. It, was yeah. a, it was a fairly consistent theme of... No, I would go over to his apartment, yeah. and I would open the door, and i go, i take one sniff, and i go, nope, we're not staying here. <laughs> <laughs> that was not me. Yeah, it was. You had roommates, probably. That yeah. was that was more the roommates uh, than me, but it was it was definitely there. <laughs> He's very clean now. I contributed. Allender <laughs> called you out on that last week too. He said you stink. Anyway, go ahead. Wait, what? <laughs> Remember? I feel like that was in a hypothetical kind of it was. way of saying that. Oh. All right, Steve. Uh, I liked what Michelle said. My first car was a 1976 Chevy Impala with a 350 V8 engine. It was brown and enormous and got about eight miles to the gallon. Um, <laughs> And I, well, okay, so the first car I drove, I don't consider it my first car because I just got it. It was the reject from the family, you know, and it was a 74 Ford station wagon, just this gigantic boat. Oh, yeah. Like from Harry and the Hendersons. Yes. Actually, in the movie Better Off Dead with John Cusack, okay. the car he drives was that exact car. Anyway. Very nice. Uh, yes. We'll and look it, it up. Yes. But my first car that I actually got for myself was an 88... 87 or 88 Ford Escort Pony, and it was a two-door, four-speed manual, and it had the automatic um, uh, seat belts where you'd open the door, the seatbelt was... Oh, nice. And, nice. And I think probably that suits my personality because, one, it was very fuel efficient, so I also, I'm also i a tightwad. Frugal. Frugal. That's the right word. Yeah. Frugal. Not miserly. Not miserly. Not miserly. Frugal. And also, I like, every, I like people doing everything for me, I guess, with the seatbelts. <laughs> Just like, go ahead and just put that seatbelt on me. I can't be bothered to nurture. Just, again, yeah. core needs again. Yeah, right. It's nurturing you, this car. Uh, I liked what Piper had to say. Her first car was a Chevy Vega, the car that rusted in the showroom. So I'm guessing it stayed there into, hmm. I don't know. Anyway, I'd like to hear more about that. It needed a paint job, and my dad did car restoring. He asked what color, and I said lavender and magenta which sounds amazing. Yeah. I lost my driving privileges for three weeks, however, <laughs> when I put 11 kids in it and put my younger brother away in the hatchback, way back. My friends called it Piper's Purple Piecer, <laughs> and it said everything about my personality. It was purple before there were purple vehicles made. So wow. feisty personality yeah. and break of the law a little bit, and a lot of it, I liked it. My first car was, you know, family hand-me-down, 88 Oldsmobile, but then, <laughs> so I'm the ninth of 12 kids. And my parents started getting a little less frugal when there were less humans in the house. Ah. So I got a brand new 
2003 Pontiac Vibe. Nice. Right off the lot. And I got to pick the color. And it was sporty. And it had a hatchback. And pretty much every single older sibling called me and said I was a spoiled brat. (laughs) (laughs) I like to see it as more favorite child so second <laughs> family no that that was the the come hither for me it oh, was that was sure. actually one of the first things i approached her to talk about was so i was like oh that's a nice car yeah, yeah. i really like it guys our marriage book we're writing it's, it's actually a car book surprise <laughs> yeah. that's the secret to marriage cars. super super appropriate and the episode's done just kidding okay <laughs> Let's take a vacation, a trip to Goofball Island with our new friend Bruce. Time for Goofball Island! Now, this is the time of the week where we intentionally take a vacation from our problems. Now, I need to say something funny. Uh, Foy, who is a longtime fan of this podcast, he said, I'm very concerned about all of the buildup that's happening on Goofball Island because you guys keep taking a lot of fifth wheels and Lazy Susan's there, and I never hear how you get back. So there's a big dump. There's a dumping ground on Goofball Island. That's funny. I see you, Foy. That was a good one. Okay, because we are taking another fifth wheel because I keep rotating the same two games and the game we're playing is 5 10 15 20 we played this again we played this last week but i just like it and we're going to ask you some questions bruce just to get to know you better and start to dive into our heart and so we're going to start at age zero and ask you about your birth what was a strange funny or interesting fact about your birthday or place okay well i came home from the hospital to a log cabin on a creek north of dallas Mm. Perfect. Like Little House on the Prairie log cabin? Like a, Yes, like a little log cabin kind of out in the woods. And my parents tell me the story about when I was a little bitty baby in a crib and that there was a giant rat that <gasps> came into this cabin. And they, my dad killed it and saved my life when I was however many months old. So, yeah, for the first three years of my life, I grew up in this log cabin. That's amazing. My dad was in dental school, and it was like a cheap place to live. <gasps> So it wasn't like an experiment. It was like legit. <laughs> we're going to do this. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Age five. Who or what like occupation did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I always loved animals. And so I wanted to be a veterinarian, but really I wanted to talk to the animals like Dr. Doolittle. Mm. Oh, maybe had that rap bit you as a baby yeah i might have changed things well <laughs> once i took biology i no longer wanted to be a veterinarian but that's okay <laughs> age 10 fashion what was your go-to outfit i have never been a fashion person i have no idea i've never cared closest thing i could grab was my outfit <laughs> there you go that seems about right the guys in here are <laughs> nodding their heads in stereotypical male fashion well, no I, Baseball was, cap. I i definitely had a hawaiian shirt face oh. so really? yeah you were stuck <laughs> in that fashion. one hot for High a hot fashion. while <laughs> still am <laughs> <laughs> hawaiian shirt expert okay and argyle age 15 what subject sport or activity did you excel at and which were you meh yeah well i did fairly well in school but not in sports or dance My mom forced me to go to Cotillion to learn ballroom dancing, and I learned I have absolutely no rhythm at all. Whoa. Wait. Okay. Did you grow up in Texas? Is Cotillion that's like... I grew up... Yes. It's a like a high society thing where you go to a country club and you wear a suit and the girls wear white gloves and you bow and... I've watched Gilmore Girls. I know things. (laughs) (laughs) It was way out of my comfort zone. Well, you tried. And, you know, I'm academic, I suppose. That matters more. 
Yeah. Don't write me letters. Okay. <laughs> Age 20. Where were you at on the calling or trajectory God had for you? I had gotten started. I was at the University of Texas in Austin and studying ancient Greek and thinking about going to seminary and heavily involved in my local church and being a witness for Christ. We had a bunch of Christian guys living in a, in a big house together in Austin, Texas. That sounds amazing. I mean, except probably I wouldn't want to be with a house of guys, but it sounds like good community. I wasn't sure where you were going there, but I got I like the community aspect. Right. Matt has a lot of questions for me now. Okay, now let's shift to hearing some more about that story into the heart of the matter. Okay, Bruce, we ask everyone these set of questions, which is how was the gospel first good news for you and how is it still? I trusted in Christ when I was five years old. My mom and dad became Christians that year and shared the gospel with me. And God just grabbed a hold of me in a way I cannot explain and imparted a radical faith in me that has stayed that way all my life. Uh, when I was six years old, I gave all my money to Billy Graham and Whoa. I've been involved in every Bible study discipleship thing that there was. Hmm. But then just two years ago, the church gave me after 20 years of ministry, our 20th anniversary at the church, a five month sabbatical. And I spent time up in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and had this profound encounter with God in which I experienced at a deeper level than ever in my life, God's unconditional love for me. Hmm. It was just incredibly powerful. It wasn't quite a vision and it wasn't quite, it was, it was something like it was really happening. It was like the father was holding me and I was five years old hmm. and just, and assuring me that he loved me. It was just, I've never been the same since. Wow. Well, and I hear that even, you know, you, people didn't hear this uh, part of it, but you prayed over us before beginning. And I was like, this brother walks with God, like just in the way you speak. And um, like, it's just, it's deeper than a head knowledge. And even as you're saying, like, you've been faithful, like many people have like a falling away type of story. And I'm sure there's been moments-ish of that, but just hearing God's deepening of his love for you, I just, ugh, I love it. Okay. So I'm sure that that affects, you know, the books you've written and, and even your care and concern for the church in matters of sexuality. Uh, so you've written this book, this whole, how do we dive into this, these practical questions as leaders in the church? And, and I just want to ask you, where do we begin? If I'm a pastor listening to this, and I've had people come to my office in tears over their own sexuality or in tears over their gay child sexuality or in tears because I can't answer right away about baptizing them as a same-sex couple or doing their child's baby dedication. Like my heart perhaps is resonating already with yours, Bruce. Like you love God, you love people, but oh my goodness, where do I even begin in these practical questions? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to suggest, Loria, maybe a place that might not be where we think, but I believe we need to start with ourselves hmm. and so, and face our own sexuality. And where I'm coming from is I'm thinking about Paul's advice to, to Christian leaders saying, be a model and example to the flock or look over yourself and then the flock. Or I think in a recovery program, it's doing a, a fearless moral inventory. And so I think sometimes as, as spiritual leaders or maybe more true Christians, we sort of position it as 
those sexual sinners over there, whoever they might be, however they might be sinning, and then I'm this pastor or church leader, mm. and to, to face the fact that I'm also a sexual sinner, because I pretty much think every adult past puberty is a sexual sinner. I mean, I very, very few of us will look back at our entire lives and think we've been completely pure sexually. Right. And so what about doing a, a, a fearless inventory, you know, pray David's prayer in, in the Psalms, Lord, search me and know me. And what about see if there's any sexually offensive way in me? Mm-hmm. And then to come, come to grips, of course, we know what to do with our sin when we look back at our life and the things we regret. And let me just expand it a little bit. How about not only things you've done that are sort of overt, but how about how you've treated other people? Like, did you seduce somebody? Did you objectify somebody? What, what kind of language did you use, either about straight people or about gay people? Did you call people words that were really cruel or unkind? You know, there's just quite a range really of things. And then what do we do with all that? Well, we receive God's forgiveness. And to not just know it with head knowledge, but like you and I were just talking about, to really embrace that God has forgiven me for all my sexual sin. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't die for me because I'm a Christian leader or a pastor or anything like that. He died for me because I'm a sexual sinner, among other things, among other sins. Right. And so I don't think we can really minister to others until we've received and experienced God's love and grace for ourselves, which means we have to walk through that really messy space of facing ourselves. That's so important. Would you say another self-reflective question to ask is, how do I actually feel about LGBT people? Yes, we've got to face our own prejudice. And why do we feel that way? Mm -hmm. You know, what's in our own hearts? And where did that come from? Maybe the way we were raised, maybe there's some fears in there. There there just could be a range of things. It's soul exploration, really, that is wise to do to ask, why do I feel uncomfortable? Why do I feel fearful? What's going on in my soul? And and where did that come from? So... I have this happen quite often, and maybe you've had people approach you too, even since writing this book, Bruce, but is uh, congregants will feel a stirring for the need to talk about this before sometimes pastors do. And it can be vice versa, but sometimes it's those who attend a church. And, And I have found it's very challenging to get a pastor to start talking about this without for lack of a better term, someone in their face or, or crisis of some sort. So I guess I would ask you, what, why did you start engaging this conversation and how, why, why should pastors? Yeah, I think all of us have personal stories. These days I ask audiences sometimes who here knows somebody who is not straight, who would identify in some way or another as LGBTQ among your family or friends. And near, you wouldn't be surprised. Nearly every hand goes up. Right. And so even though you can read some national statistics about maybe a smaller percentage, in terms of the impact, it's huge. And so I think that the, the problem, though, is we are, we're so hesitant to talk about it because we're aware of, of a lot of dangers around the conversation. And yet I think it's it, it, from a pastor's – from my standpoint as a pastor, it's affecting the majority of my congregation. Hmm. But then maybe even a, another step – I want to say more than that, but just as important to me is the gospel. Yeah. Because when I've talked about it and shared my love, let me give an illustration. A lady, a mom came up to me with teenage daughters 
And she said, Bruce, my 16-year-old daughter came up to me, and your sermon meant so much to her because she wanted to know that the pastor of our church, that her pastor loves her friends who are gay at her school mm-hmm. and some of her best friends, blah, blah, blah. You know, a typical story with a teenager. But I'm thinking the next generation is watching us so closely. Right. And they want to know. It's not just it's a litmus test, like a doctrinal litmus test. It's deeper than that. It's a heart litmus test. Does, as a teenager, I'm looking, on a young adult, does my church care for gay people? Do they treat them with love or are they mean to them, to put it bluntly? Right. Now, for those who are maybe just joining us for the first time, you may be listening and being like, wait a minute, I thought that this, these people, these, who, these hosts in this podcast, they hold to the historical Christian view or the orthodox or traditional view, which is we believe that God's design for marriage is a man and a woman in a covenant, one flesh union for life. So yes, we do believe that. But for too long, we've also believed that to hold to that view, you need to not be able, you need to also not say those sentences you just said, Bruce, which is loving LGBT people and engaging with grace and truth. So, okay, that's hard. (laughs) So let's say a pastor is listening and they're like, I know. And maybe they know the stats, uh, which I've mentioned these before on the podcast about how 90% of clergy uh, find it's their responsibility to speak on important social issues. And the top two issues they feel inept or unequipped to speak on are LGBT and same sex marriage. So they feel the pressure yet they feel inept. So they're listening to you. They're wrestling with this theology and love uh, now what? So I did some of this heart check. Now what do I do? Yeah, I think it's really is important to educate ourselves. And it's mm-hmm. not a topic that a lot of pastors have probably studied. Right. And yet we've got to be informed about what the Bible does say and doesn't say. And, and I find that sometimes, uh, especially people who believe the Bible is the word of God, which of course, I mean, I do, or believe it's inspired and errant, the authoritative and we have this assumption that since I believe the Bible is true in the Word of God, that means everything I believe is what the Bible believes, and whatever the Bible believes, I must believe. Mm-hmm. And yet what that does is it causes us to go to the Bible and not expect to be corrected. Hmm. In other words, we don't go to the Bible to learn something we don't already know or believe because we assume we believe it. And yet I think in this area of sexuality, there's a lot of room to grow I, I doubt that very many people in their seminary training took a course on the theology of sexuality. Right. It just, it just wasn't, I mean, it does, it is here and there these days, but it's not very common. So really to say, Hey, let me go do some exploration, do some exploring. What is a theology of sexuality? In addition to what does the Bible say about, about what we might say, quote unquote, homosexuality. So what are some of those resources you went to or what are yeah, some the, great ones now? Yeah, there are, I, I think probably the, the, the one book I would point people to, if there's only one you're going to read is Preston Sprinkle's People to be Loved. Right. But if you wanted to go deeper, maybe if you're a pastor and you want to study at a deeper level, you could look up some Christian theologies about sexuality that they're going to, you're going to find several of them in bibliographies, like in my book. I don't, I'm not trying to just promote my book, but I give a list of those, of different books like that, that would give you a broader theology, a Christian theology of sexuality. Mm. 
And I know, too, just for those of you who are listening and in case you get cut away from this podcast, Preston also has something called a pastor's resource. And it's a it's a good one stop shop. Um, But I I don't know if he has this new resource of your book, Bruce, which I'll link people to as well. Uh, But it really does say, hey, here, this is what you need to study. This is what you can open up so that you can teach the congregation well. So after this pastor does this, you know, he does his heart work, he does this study to be like, okay, what does the Bible say? And how can I get beefed up on it? And God help me, this is really complicated. Is the next step, you know, do I need to write a covenant? Do I need to, um, what do I need to do next? Or do I need to do a, a sermon, a homosexuality, for lack of a better term, sermon? Where do I go? Right, right. Um, I think in, a lot of that depends on your congregation, where people are in your church, what, what's your, what's going on. A couple of places you can go. One would be to do some reading with your leaders. Most every church, you've got elders, deacons, pastors, staff, some governing board. And it's important, I believe, for the leaders of a given local church to be on the same page. Unity is really important. The church can be all over the map, and that's fine. Everybody's in different places are growing. But as you're growing as a pastor, one of the places I would go first is to help my leaders grow. Yeah. So I would take maybe the best book you've read or an excerpt or and walk through it with your leaders before you go to your whole congregation so that you know you're on the same page. And then if attacks come or controversy comes, you know, hey, all of us as leaders have talked this through And whether you write a covenant or not, you know, you've talked it through and you're in agreement and you're on the same page with the people to whom you report or to whom you do ministry together as a team. Hmm. Okay. So let's say you go to your team. It's 2019, man. There are many people who, you know, pastors can assume that their congregation is all on this or their staff is all on the same page, but they're not. And so they start bringing this up and they get pushback. You just said it's critical for the staff to be on the same page. What if they're not? Yeah, I think you've really, you know, then you've got some tough conversations to have. And again, a lot depends. You want to be pastorally wise about how you approach this. So it depends on where, who it, who it is that's having the, the disagreement, what the disagreement is about. Some of it might be if people are exploring and aren't sure and really need to do some more thinking, you can bring in an outside person, hmm. uh, someone like Preston Sprinkle, Bill Henson, Caleb, uh, Kaltenbach, myself to come lead you. So I've met with several churches to meet with their staffs and say, hey, let's talk this through. Let's spend a half a day or a day and really talk about this. That can be helpful. Often, I think you want to meet with that staff person, that deacon, that elder, and have a one-on-one longer conversation where you really explore, hey, what's going on with you and your heart and your background, where you're coming from? It's about pastoral care and really discipling somebody and helping them grow in this area. It's This is far more than just an intellectual doctrinal kind of sterile conversation. Yeah. This is often about my sister, my brother, my dad, mm. my son. Yeah. Th- that often is more the case. So let's say it, it gets to a point though. So we have some of those pastoral conversations and it gets to a point where they're like, I don't agree with you. I'm going to stay in this affirming worldview. So if you hold to the traditional or non-affirming is what it's called worldview and they hold to the affirming, um, 
is it okay at let and we're talking again strictly staff uh elder deacon level is it enough for them to say okay well i can i can tow the party line i can speak i can speak right. this publicly but in my heart i disbelieve it is that enough can you still be unified and and like still lead the church if that's their stance yeah, again, there's one of those situations that requires tremendous wisdom. It's not there's not a yes no like yeah. a, you know here's the here's the textbook answer yeah, yeah. for that. However, what we do require is we require that our leaders sign that they will support our doctrinal statement, which includes the position you just mentioned about a, a classic traditional stance stance on marriage. If you can't support it, then you really can't be on the team. If you dis- disagree, or many times people, sometimes they're not disagreeing, they're saying, I need to think it through. I'm not sure. Right. I'm in a process of discerning. That's okay. And even if we disagree, if they say, you know, I disagree, but I'm going to support where we come from, and they're not in a teaching role in the church. Okay. Or at a, at a level of the highest level of authority. So, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's hey, what role is somebody playing on the staff or on a leadership team? What role are they playing in the church? And if, if someone, let me flip it though. If someone says, I feel very strongly about an affirming point of view and I want to let people know that, mm. well then that would really create disunity. And just like I would say that about a variety of issues that if you feel very strongly about that, then that's really not, and, and you want to communicate your point of view to as many people as you can in our church, that unity trumps that. Mm. We really need to be unified as a church. And so it's probably better to find a church where you can be on the same page with that church and they with you. And Mm. that's okay. Do you have, when I uh, speak and do some of these sort of consulting conversations with churches, I'll say, you know, you guys need to decide at what level does everyone need to believe the same things? And then what, at what level do, does everyone need to be able to teach? So like exactly what you're saying where, okay, I might not believe it, but I'm willing to teach it and I won't speak against it. But then to also speak publicly because people could say, well, I'll teach it at church, but on Facebook, I'm going to go against it. Um, So that's just another thing that, that we've thought through is, you know, maybe all elders and pastors need to believe it and teach it and speak it. But at the next level, just teach it and speak it. And then at the next level down, it's just, you know, speak it or find you guys that can actually have different perspectives and even say that publicly is, would that be helpful delineation? Yes. Yeah, it really is. It's helpful to think that through all, all the way through to the congregation level. All right, let's go back to the sermon. So does there need to be a sermon? Like, do we need, why do we need to talk about this? Doesn't it just make people mad? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One, I don't, I don't think we can dodge it if you're preaching all the way through the Bible. I just preach, I'm in the middle of a series on Romans. And so, you know, I didn't want to skip the second half of Romans one. Like (laughs) I'm just going to go ahead and preach this. Yep. Uh, And you get a range of responses. But I think to not preach on this is to not give people leadership in an area where people have tremendous questions, where there's current confusion Hmm. about how to think well. So either you leave people in confusion or you give people wise guidance as a pastor. I did a five-week series on sexuality a number of several years ago, Hmm. and and you can do like the sermon on quote-unquote homosexuality. But right. you can do other sermons where you're talking about love and grace, where you're talking about um, sexuality itself, hmm. that I think is really builds a, a, a basis where we need to think about that. 
you can do a, a, a sermon on singleness that builds an important basis for some of these conversations. Yeah. And I would say just as someone who could identify in the LGBT circle, it's so, I, I wouldn't love hearing one sermon on homosexuality and I'm doing air quotes around that around LGBT, but I'd love to hear a series on sexuality. And like you wisely right. started Bruce with, Hey, let's check your heart guys. Let's look at our own hearts first, because then it doesn't feel like I'm being singled out. Um, nor am I being ignored. It's, it's like, Hey, let's all get to the foot of the cross. Yeah. I have a, I have a, a chapter on leading theologically and it's just a short chapter, but looking at sexuality through the, the history of redemption. So looking at creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Yeah. And say, how could, how could we view sexuality? How would you, how would you think through theology, uh, theology of sexuality, walking through creation? And now this is really oversimplistic, but in, you can unpack it. In, sexu- in creation, sex is good yep. in marriage. In the fall, sex is distorted. For all of us. So all of us have desires we should never fulfill. Hmm. And then in redemption, really sex becomes optional and singleness is honored. Hmm. And boy, to unpack that in terms of the shift from biological reproduction to spiritual reproduction, from a a biological family to the church family and 1 Corinthians 7 and all of that. And then in the new creation, sex is surpassed. Yeah. And to say, hey, our eschatology is really quite different than a lot of other ones. We are not Mormons, nor are we Muslims. Mm-hmm. We, we have a different belief about what the afterlife is going to be. And when I say there's going to be no sex in heaven, I find people like, wait a minute, do I really want to go to heaven then? Come on. <laughs> and I say, hey, what does that betray about our view of sexuality? Do we really believe that union with Jesus is more joyful, more fulfilling than sex? Mm-hmm. Not only in heaven, but today. Mm-hmm. And so to now sexuality is a good gift, but it's not a good God. Mm. It, it is a good thing, but it's not essential for a good life. That's something that I've not heard, you know, a lot of other people. I don't know that I've heard anyone else in this conversation talk about kind of that, that ultimate destination for, for sex and sexuality. And if you don't have that belief that, okay, yes, in heaven, there is going to be, as, as C.S. Lewis puts it, like there's going to be something better that leaves no room for sexuality. Um, isn't that going to cloud and, and kind of direct how you would even preach about it? Because you're saying in, in essence that sex is the ultimate in this life and therefore it should be the ultimate in the next. But it, if you have this, this theology that, okay, sex is going to, yes, be surpassed. There will be something else that is greater. Doesn't that put it in perspective in this life as well to, to even have the idea that, okay, sex is good, you know, is created for a good reason. It, it, yes. If we talk to Christopher West all day and I probably could, um, you know, you'd learn a whole lot about it, but, but that it shouldn't be this idolatrous, this ultimate thing, even within a marriage, even within just our, our, our lives as, as Christians. Yeah. I mean, and it's such an, that's such an important correction to the whole purity movement, which is, has a lot of good things to it. But when we say to our teenagers, here's a purity ring, um, don't have sex till you're married. And then on the wedding night, it's going to be amazing. And then as soon as someone gets married, here's some Christian sex manuals. And that's kind of it. 
<laughs> and I'm being character. I know I'm being unfair and I'm characterizing, caricaturing a bit, but it sometimes seems like that's our evangelical sort of view of sexuality is, mm-hmm. hey, don't get, don't have any sex till you get married, and then it's going to be amazing, and then here's some sex manuals, do it really well. I know. And that it's like, is that? I'm not so. You know, that is not a biblical theology of sexuality, and and so what happens is because we've overplayed sex to be such a big thing. And then we've treated singles as second-class citizens. Then what we say to um, a gay person, or sometimes what gets communicated is, hey, I'm sorry, you have to be single and you can't have sex. Ooh, I'm sorry, it sucks for you. You're going to have a terrible life. And we don't say that that way. But it's our bad theology of sex and our bad theology of singleness that undermines the vibrancy of our message to LGBTQ people. Mm. And our bad theology of familial inclusion. And and you talk about this in your book of just like, we've lost this brothers and sisters-ness. Like we do not step into the oneness God, Jesus prayed for us in John 17. We just don't. We are not one (laughs) as a church and we don't treat each other's family. You know, tied to love, people... I'm, I'm looking at a, at a little plaque and I'm, I'm right in front of me and it quotes 1 Corinthians 13 about love, which is often read in a wedding. And I've, I do it in wedding ceremonies, but people forget it's not in the context of marriage. 1 Corinthians 13, if, if, if you go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then 14 are in the context of the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage about love is in the church or when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest love? It seems like a lot of people today would say, oh, a husband and a wife. But he says a friend who lays down his life. And I I think we've just forgotten a lot of that, that some of the greatest love is in a friendship and in the the church family. Hmm. It's so good. And I'll never forget, you know, when I was in my same sex relationship, I did not despise the church's theology of sexuality and marriage as much as I, the hypocrisy hurt so much. Right. So if we right. do the, this sermon, actually sermon series, please, <laughs> uh, on sexuality. And then every time you're preaching through the Bible, bringing it up, um, in the context of our own brokenness and with this gorgeous gospel look, it's going to soften it, not water it down, but it's going to ensure that we're all looking at each other as Preston Sprinkle often says, as fellow beggars in need of bread. So it's so important to say that to, to, to teach when I think, what would you preach in a sermon? Part of it is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sexual sinners. And, and I find still that, that people are, are, I had someone come meet with me in my office and they said, well, Bruce, you, you said it was wrong, but then you took the sting out because you said we're all sinners. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, or, you know, did you tell people to repent? It's like, I think we're all supposed to repent. Mm. And so there's this misnomer that this is the greatest sin or an abomination or the worst of all possible sins. And it's almost this thought of, hey, if I'm a heterosexual, I'm good, homosexual, bad. If I'm married and I'm heterosexual, as long as I don't have an affair or do porn, I'm sexually great. Mm. And I say, no, wait a minute. 
Let me push that question just one step further. Have you ever used sex as a weapon, a reward? Have you ever asked your partner to do something they were uncomfortable doing? In fact, let's go further. Have, have you been, has it ever been completely, has your sex in your marriage as a heterosexual person ever been utterly unselfish? Let's say everything in 1 Corinthians 13, has that applied to your sex in your marriage? And you start thinking, gosh, have I ever had completely God-honoring, selfless, you know, and to realize, wait a minute, we're all so tainted by sin, we can't just check the box and say, I'm good, and those people over there are all messed up. Yeah. We, we all are riddled with sin, and even in, in, in those intimate moments, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm preaching a little bit, but um, no. it, really what I'm saying is in our sermons, in a sermon on this is to say, hey, we all come to the cross in need of forgiveness. Mm. And l- let me just take it another level is, you know, I said you need to face yourself and what you've done that you feel yucky about and you look back and gosh, oh, I regret these various things sexually. Well, let me say another question we can all ask ourselves is what's been done to me? Yeah. And if you look at those statistics, women and men, most of us have had something done to us. Yeah. And my wife even said, you know, the whole Me Too movement, she goes, Bruce, you too. I'm like, mm. what are you talking about? Mm. And she said, remember the story you told me when you were 16 and that summer and the girl across the street? And I was like, oh, wow. And she, you know, basically tried to seduce me. Mm. And I just, now there wasn't a power differential and I wasn't, you know, right. But still, yeah, she's like, don't think, Bruce, that that didn't impact you. Mm. And I realized, wow, yeah, all of us, not all of us, the majority of us probably have had something done to us sexually, and that applies to all of us, straight, Mm non-straight, that we have, um, I just had a pastor meet with me in my office two weeks ago. He is doing an amazing job in his area of ministry and uh, tremendously successful. If you were looking on the outside, he started crying and he said, Bruce, would you recommend a counselor? And he said, I was abused by a cousin, I think, or an uncle, and I never told my parents, and I haven't dealt with it. And now I've been married a couple of years. We just had a baby and I'm not doing well. And I think, you know, it's those, um, both first script to deal with ourselves first, but then think in our congregation, how do we help our people heal mm-hmm. from what's been done to them? Women and men, straight and gay. And that is so important. We were talking last week about statistics. It's, um, Allender has, he, he cites higher statistics, like one in four men and one in two women right. have had endured some form of sexual trauma. And it's, it's not, if we carry those wounds with us onto a platform and then speak about sexual brokenness, it, we're going to bleed on the audience uh, because we haven't done our own heart work yet. And so doing the lament work, which is just grieving to God and getting the, right. the infection out. And then forgiving those perpetrators. I could not be speaking on a stage if I had not done the hard work I've done. And I know I've got more to do, but I'm just, I think sometimes our vitriol comes out or our us versus them comes out because we haven't done our own soul care for our own areas. We haven't dealt with our own stuff. Yep. I had something a pastor could do is in the book, I have one chapter that's a li- I've written a liturgy of sexual healing hmm. and it just kind of stands on its own as a chapter and it's not specific to gay or straight, 
or wherever someone might, however someone might identify, but it's leading all of us in um, sort of an exercise, or I call it a liturgy of sexual healing. Hmm. We got to do it, every single one of us, because all of us are sexually broken. So I do want to ask, I'll talk to pastors and they'll be like, well, I'm like trying to, I'm encouraging them to engage this conversation. We're doing perhaps some of the training that Matt and I do together. Um, And they'll say, well, what if people leave? And I'm like, well, they might leave. Uh, Right. And they're like, well, I'm not scared of it. Like, it's not, it's not like I'm like afraid of people. I don't want to people please, but what if they leave? So what if they leave, Bruce? So sometimes they leave and I don't know. Yeah. But when they leave, I bless them out and say, I just want to bless you and encourage you. And if there's another place that the God has for you to minister, we want to send you out with love and kindness and grace. And sometimes I want to say, hey, let's be sure that we've understood each other. So when you leave and you represent me, I would appreciate you not misrepresenting me. So you do understand what we're saying as a church is this, not that. Yeah. Because I want to guard a little bit about someone going out and slamming me. Yeah. And then I say, let me let you know that you're always welcome back here. Mm-hmm. And and I usually what I say is some, I want to extend that really strong. So I say, you're welcome. In fact, we throw out a red carpet. I would just give you the biggest hug. Yeah. And if, if the Lord ever leads you back. And then I'll also sometimes I've learned that sometimes people think, well, if I leave the church, that means I can't go to the Bible study or the retreat or the conference or the, or the concert or whatever else. I say, you know what, even though you don't go to the church, you're welcome to participate in anything we do. I just want to give you the freedom and give an invitation that to, I just don't want you to think you couldn't come to, you know, whatever. Yep. Or your kids couldn't come and be a part of whatever. And so really what it is is showing incredible grace, but you I found that that people have been a bit surprised and said, "Really it'd be okay if I still came to the whatever it might be." Hmm. And I say, "Yeah, it sure is." Now, people might leave because they you're talking about this too graciously or not graciously enough, you know, whatever the perspective is, but we we are in an era where when people leave or, you know, the canceled era or write you off or we're all done, it's very extremism that we live in right now. uh, Doesn't that mean that you're doing something wrong if they leave? No, I think, I actually think that if you're not offending people on both sides, you're probably not doing it right. Oh, snap. I mean, you think about Jesus, he was not known for being unoffensive, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, not even by a large measure. So when I preached on Romans 1 just a few months ago, I had uh, the wonderful moment where a lady came forward. She's bald because she's going through cancer treatments. And she came up and in a bit of a husky voice, she said, I'm a lesbian woman. I've been gay all my life. And at 16, when I came out, my mom told me one thing, don't go to churches or be with Christian people because they'll judge you. And she said, I've never come to a church since then. But she said, I decided to come back or go because of my cancer and, and through a, going to AA. And she said, can I just hug you? I feel loved here. Wow. Hmm. At the same time, I, I on, on, on Reddit, a person said, I'm gay and I'll never come to that church because they don't like gay people. <laughs> yep. Same sermon. I had a, a man come meet with me and say, you didn't tell them, quote unquote, to repent yeah. And you didn't say it was abomination or the worst sin. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are people who want to leave this church because you're not being strong enough. Same sermon. Mm-hmm. Same sermon. That's the range of reaction from I wasn't hard enough to I love this church and thank you for loving me. There's, there's a young man. He's about 19, 20. 
and he came up to me and he, his appearance was quite effeminate. I don't even know his name. And he said, I, I thought about coming. My parents weren't coming. I go to community college. I was going to come, but then I thought I might walk out. And he was just so conflicted. And he said, would you just give me a hug? And I just hugged him. And I, I guess one of the things I'd say to pastors is hugs don't undermine theology. Yeah. And we, we somehow think that love and grace mean we're minimizing truth. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. It's not like grace and truth are being weighed. And, and the more truth you have, the less grace. And the more grace, the less truth. That's just completely wrong. Mm-hmm. We are come full of grace and full of truth. And those grace and truth unite in love. That's right. I love there's a Tim Keller quote, and I'm, I'm going to miss it a little bit. But he talks about uh, the woman caught in adultery. And he goes, Jesus was like love and compassion and melt in your mouth, gentle to the nth degree. And he was righteous and just to the nth degree and righteousness and compassion don't fight in him. They unite in him. Unlike the world has ever seen before. So even though we can't be like, behold, like we can't fathom it, he can, and he's the standard. And so we can run to both to the nth degree. I, I encourage pastors to study Jesus communication, Yeah, especially with people on the margins, but especially people in sexual sin. So there's three conversations, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery and the sinful woman. And to look at those three conversations and look at how did Jesus handle those and why were those people drawn to Jesus when he still said the man you live with, you're with now is not your husband. And then I ask people, what did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? There's no question she was caught in adultery. Yep. And I find people instantly say two different things. And Jesus said both of them. But you might ask yourself, why does which one come to you first? And one of the things he said was, go and sin no more. Right. The other thing he said was, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. So then I ask people, which one did he say first? Yeah. Condemnation. And the, <laughs> yeah. and the answer is, neither did I condemn you. So he started with grace. Mm. So you just might, I think it's instructive for us. I'm not saying that's a command, but I think it's a pattern that Jesus started with grace and then moved to truth. Yeah. He offered the woman at the well living water. And the woman who's washing his feet with her hair and perfume is a quote unquote sinful woman, probably a prostitute. And what's fascinating to me is the text doesn't say whether she was currently a prostitute or not. Hmm. It just doesn't address the issue. Had she repented? Had she not? And the Pharisees are saying, don't you know who you're touching and who's touching you? You know, and, and Jesus is you know, completely un, <laughs> unruffled by that. And he just loves her. Mm. And she obviously loves him. And I don't think there's any confusion in her mind that that he stands for holiness. Yeah. Oh, God help us. So last question for you, Bruce, is, you know, we, we alluded to these things like writing the covenant and getting your staff on board and engaging these challenging conversations. I've been in many pastor meetings where it's like, this is hard and not just pastor meetings. This is family conversations. This is affecting all of us. This is challenging. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to engage these conversations with grace and truth? It is a thousand percent worth it. I I was meeting with a, a, a lesbian couple maybe two months ago, and they came into my office with their nine-year-old little girl. And one of the ladies was raised Mormon, and her mom is in town and taking the granddaughter to a Mormon church. And the little girl loves our church. 
And the two ladies, their question to me was, are we welcome at this church because of our sexual orientation? Hmm. And I explained that what we believe that the marriage is, we believe marriage between a man and a woman and all sexes reserved for that relationship, but that we can agree to disagree and we can worship Jesus without agreeing about that. And we're all in process and growing. And they said, oh, that's fine. And what I thought is to myself is, you know what? This nine-year-old girl's eternal destiny is at stake. Mm. And she's being torn between Mormonism and an evangelical church with a true gospel. And this is worth it to the nth degree mm. for this little girl, this little third grader. <sighs> All right. Well, you guys listening, you hear Bruce's heart and his pastoral voice. And there is his book is chock full of really practical answers and questions. And so I'll link you to that book. Um, you know, he talks about like, do I go to the same sex wedding? Do how, how do we care for teenagers? And how can we engage this in really practical ways? And um, so I'd love for you to look that up. I'll link you also to Preston's site, uh, which also has some very practical pieces. And, and no one has this completely on lock. Okay. Like there are still some gaping needs, you know, how do we disciple kids in 2019? These little kids, I think that's a big place. And these teenagers, how do we walk alongside them? But so thankful for voices like yours, Bruce, stepping in with both the theological mind, the pastoral heart and the real practical care. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You're most welcome, Lori. Man, what a joy to be with you on the show. And I think, appreciate what you just said, because I do not have all the answers by a long shot. Mm. And probably nobody's going to agree with everything in my book. And I bet five years from now, I don't agree with all of it. <laughs> but I really think it could help at least progress the conversation for a pastor. Yes. Yes. Amen. And God help us. All right. Now, for those of you who will be joining us next week, we have a question of the week for you for our final one. Of season two. <laughs> I did not mean to rhyme, but it's true. Okay. All right, guys. How are you doing on your word for the year or your resolution? What has God been teaching you through it? If you did pick a word for the year or some sort of resolution, we're about halfway through the year. Um, so I'd love to hear from y'all about how that's going. And it's just going to be Matt and Steve and I just hanging out, talking about highlights from season two, which there are many. Uh, they are a plenty. <laughs> Anyway, also, for those of you who reach out to us and give us iTunes reviews, just thank you. Um, it just blesses our hearts to hear how you all have been impacted by the, the ministry and by this podcast and the emails that you send out. And for those of you who haven't reached out or haven't given us any feedback, we would love to hear from you on our main page of the website, himhministries.com. I posted a survey Six questions should take you four minutes. I saw the average is like, okay, it's 4.59. That's that's the average. That's five minutes. Uh, but it's at the top of the HIMH site. But we'd love to just hear from you. Just what do you like the most? What don't you appreciate? which hopefully there's not many, although Goofball Island is controversial, I didn't realize. Uh, but help us think through future guests and ideas. Um, we are so excited about season three. I'm already booking guests into the fall. And so I'm excited after the two-month break, because of maternity leave, to come back into the saddle and uh, just continue the conversations with you all. All right, but that's, we're going to call it a wrap today. Uh, we're so grateful for guests like Bruce and for your listening. And so for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week.
Hopefully I'll see you next week. Yeah, right? I may be having a baby. So were your other ones like on time? Were they early? No. or Both of them, six days late. And they're both six pounds, 14 ounces. Now let me tell you about the last wait, round. Wait, wait, wait. Both your girls are the same weight? <laughs> yes. and, and length, 19 inches. And six days Everything. late. And the same amount Everything. of yeah. I mean, wow. there is a consistency so far. But yeah. But this one's Juliet. a boy. So. But the boy, yeah, he might break the bank or we'll break the mold. Break the bank. <laughs> Hopefully not break the bank. Oh, There's not much there. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> Depends on what car we get. Them, right? No. Okay. <laughs> no brand new Pontiac vibe for him. Nope. <laughs> not possible. <laughs> Even though if he is the favorite, I don't know. Okay. Stop talking, Lori. Anyway. So Juliet, no, she was late and uh, I was about to be induced the next day and it was, oh, yay, 92 degrees outside and we don't have air conditioning in our house. Yeah. So I said, Matt, drop me off at the mall. And he's like, okay. For some reason, I picture a cigarette or somebody's, no, sorry, <laughs> throwing something. Drop me off, babe. I was not smoking. <laughs> I, and I go to the mall, 10 a.m. And on July 26th and he picks me up at 5 p.m. I'm having contractions every two minutes. You were there for seven hours. Yeah, mm -hmm. walking and yeah. walking. And we, I'm having contractions every two minutes, and we go to the hospital, and I, we're in triage, and I'm, like, in writhing pain. I go, Matt, check my phone. See how many miles I walked. <laughs> and he looks at it, and his eyes get big, and he goes, you walked 14 miles. So I walked 14 miles and then birthed <laughs> second born, sans drugs oh, yeah. you did a, a couple hours later i'm an insane person you so. did a half marathon <laughs> yeah. in the mall yeah. and then birthed a human more than a half marathon yeah, yeah. Wow. i know i'm crazy and my doctor i told her this story and she's like oh that's like pretty normal crazy but then i'm leaving and then i hear her talking to her nurses and she goes this lady crazy <laughs> So hopefully we'll talk to you next week. Folks. I mean, it, we it's know. a two mile an hour pace. I mean, come on. Should we should we do the should we record the podcast at the mall next week? <laughs> you know? On location. There. Right. I'd be screaming. All of our field. Yeah. Recording every equipment. two minutes it just goes quiet. <laughs> you hear me praying. Yes. I, I swear. Not at all. That's 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 really good. I know. Thank you. You're, you're focusing on the breathing. Yeah. No, she swears. Oh. No, do I? When I, you're in labor? Do I? Um, I remember a couple. I remember lots of Jesus help me. Well, I mean, that, I only ask for the real risen Lord's help. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I mean, you, you definitely can, can jaguar it up a little bit. To, I'm out. <laughs> to do okay. that. But, you know, there's. You do not judge a prey of in labor lady. Oh, no. You, that's just, that's just asinine.